Hey everybody, Jeremy here. I am excited today to bring you an interview that I conducted with Paul Nuremberg and Matthew Eklund from the Outer Brightness podcast. This is one of our last bits of random content before we get into our hermeneutic series starting the new phase of do theology. In this interview, I tried my best to have a unique look into the mind of a Latter-day Saint. Matthew and Paul are born-again believers now, but they used to be very Mormon. They went on missions. They lived the Mormon life and all of that jazz. And so I wanted to have an interview with them where we actually got inside the mind of their former selves to have a a peek inside the mind of the former Mormon, to have a blunt conversation about those things. So I, I hope this is helpful. hope it's useful as you consider your interactions with Latter-day Saints, and maybe you'll hear some things in this interview that will help you in those conversations. So uh, give us some feedback. Don't forget to leave us a rating to visit our store, store.dotheology.com. Check us out on social media, all that stuff. I don't have to tell you, but I am anyway. Just reminding you, it's really helpful when you do that kind of stuff. So would you consider doing it? That'd be great. Anyway, here's my interview with Paul and Matthew. All right. Well, I am joined today by Paul Nuremberg and Matthew Eklund from the Outer Brightness podcast. Guys that I feel like I know because I listen to their podcast quite frequently. Uh, Don't miss too many episodes. Uh, especially being a Christian, being a pastor in Utah, it's very helpful for me to hear their content as they talk about uh, their transition from being in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to being uh, members of biblical Christian churches now and confessing the biblical gospel. I learn something new in almost every episode. I feel like I've I've studied almost everything there is to study within Mormonism, and then I'll be listening to an Outer Brightness episode, and it'll be like, oh, wow, I've never heard of that before, but it's great uh, content for me to take and then share with my Latter-day Saint friends and say, hey, I was listening. These guys talk about this. Can you explain that to me? So I appreciate you guys uh, for your content that you make in your podcast and appreciate you joining me, Paul and Matthew. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, glad to be on. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you for having us. Now, I want to start out with just your backstories. I imagine uh, we do have some overlap with our listener base, but probably a minimal overlap. So people who are hearing you guys for the first time and uh, would be interested in going and checking out the Outer Brightness podcast, just give me your background one at a time, a few minutes each. Paul, if you want to start, uh, we'll just start with how you were raised um, and get into your quote unquote faith journey from Mormonism to Jesus. I, your story is exciting. I was listening on one of your recent episodes. There's a chocolate factory involved, which always <laughs> perks my attention. So uh, go ahead, Paul, t- share your story. Uh, sure. The chocolate factory was only a couple of months, but, uh, of but very influential. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. That time was influential. So um, yeah, I was born and raised uh, in the Salt Lake Valley in Utah. Um, my dad was a convert to Mormonism. Uh, uh, he joined the church at the age of 26. Uh, after his father died, he was kind of drawn in by the whole eternal families thing um, because he was grieving the loss of his dad, which was sudden. Um, my mom, on my mom's side, uh, we go back to pioneer stock. I have a great, great grandmother on that side who left Denmark and with her, uh, with several of her daughters, uh, pulled a handcart across the plains. Um, and so 
she eventually settled in uh, Pleasant Grove, Utah, and then uh, other parts of that family settled in, in Idaho, which is where my mom was born. Um, during my uh, growing up years, I was uh, pretty uh, active in the, in the LDS church. My family was, was mostly active. We would, I wouldn't say we were, uh, my mom was definitely more active than my dad, but um, we were probably three out of four weeks attender, four, four week attenders each month. Um, and, you know, I was baptized at the age of eight in the baptistry in the, in the tabernacle there on temple square. Uh, I remember early going to priesthood sessions of general conference with, with my dad, uh, when I was just a young, young boy. And then, um, as I got into my teenage years, I kind of drifted away. Many of my friends were either not LDS or were lapsed LDS. And I was a bit of a troublemaker myself. So that got me a kind of a negative reputation in the ward. I did still participate in like boy scouts and that type of thing, but I wasn't, uh, I definitely wasn't as a frequent attender during my early teenage years. Um, then in, in the senior year of uh, my high school experience, um, I transferred to a new high school that they had built that year, Copper Hills high school uh, for those who may be in Utah are aware. Uh, I happened to live in the boundaries for that high school and my junior varsity basketball coach, got the head coaching job at Copper Hills and he invited me to come play for him there. Um, so I made that transition my senior year and uh, kind of got more serious about uh, the LDS church at that time. Several of my teammates there at Copper Hills were, were very influential in, in kind of, you know, being close to me and shepherding me back into activity in the LDS church. And uh, you know, I attended seminary more regularly than I had in the past uh, during that year. Um, and was working with uh, my bishop in my LDS ward on on getting ready to submit papers for my mission. Mm -hmm. So ended up going on a mission to uh, Budapest, Hungary from 1997 to 1999, and uh, really enjoyed that experience. It was great to uh, experience another part of the world, learn a new language. Um, it was challenging, of course, um, but that, uh, that was I was going to mention um, another thing I learned from your podcast geographically that those are actually two different cities. I didn't know that before. Uh, I was listening to that episode and was like, oh, wow. Uh, I thought you know Budapest is just one town, but it's two towns. Yeah, exactly. It's um, wild. Yep. Interesting, interesting little things about, uh, about Hungary, but it's a, it's a beautiful area. Um, you know, the Buddha side of the river is, is there's a lot of hills on that side. Mm -hmm. The Pest side is more flat. Um, uh, but, you know, the Danube River runs through there and I really enjoyed uh, everything about living in a uh, central European city um, that has had, you know, uh, very important aspects uh, of history related to it. So got to see a lot of castles and that kind of thing. Really enjoyed my time there. Um, but then uh, towards the end of my mission, um, <clears throat> I started to wrestle with some questions. Uh, I had made a, a goal for myself to read through all of what Latter-day Saints called the stand, it's called the standard works, which are their, their canon of scripture, which includes the Bible, uh, the book of Mormon and doctrine and covenants and Pearl of great price. Mm. And the last one that I was reading through, because I, I started with the uh, LDS scriptures, the last one I was reading through was the new Testament. And I started to see how much of uh, the book of Mormon narrative and, and, uh, text itself relies upon uh, the letters of Paul and some of some of the other writings in 
in the New Testament, like Acts and Paul's experience mm-hmm. with his uh, road to Damascus experience. So those kind of things started to bother me. I had already had, uh, I had already struggled as a teenager to kind of really believe that uh, the Book of Mormon came about as Joseph Smith said it came about. Um, and so as those things started to bother me, I started to look into LDS apologetics when I returned from my mission. And that's where the, the chocolate factory comes in. I, I went to work pulling orders at a Hershey chocolate factory and, <laughs> and spent my lunches reading uh, apologetics works from farms, the foundation for ancient research and Mormon studies, which is now the, the Maxwell Institute at BYU. And um, a lot of those apologetics articles challenged me even more Um but uh, met my wife online. Uh, she lived out here in the Cincinnati area where we live now. And um, she convinced me because I wasn't yet uh, uh, registered to go to the University of Utah. She convinced me to come out here and go to hmm. go to college. So I, I moved out here, went to University of Cincinnati, um, started a pre-law degree there, uh, and then um, finished up a business degree at a small Catholic uh, college that's near where we live. And that was very influential. Um but early on in my married years, uh, continued to struggle with questions that I had about Latter-day Saint uh, doctrine and history. And um, after 10 years of marriage, uh, we made a decision together to leave the LDS church. Uh, we no longer believed it was true, and we didn't feel like we were growing in Christ there. So we made a decision to leave and, and try to find a church where we could grow in Christ. Hmm. Amen. What, uh, through your experience there, Paul, what what was your relationship like with your parents as you were very obviously exiting the church through those, I'm assuming it was a couple of period of a couple of years where you were wrestling with things and then mm-hmm. finally making the decision to leave. What was your relationship like with your parents and your family? Yeah, it was tough. Um, my, my parents actually ended up moving out here uh, in 2004. So I had been out here right about four years when my dad moved out here. He worked, uh, he, worked in the electronics industry for many years out there in Utah. And the company that he had been working for was struggling and um, ended up going out of business. And so he, he lost his job and um, he decided to come look out here um, primarily because my mom said, Hey, you know, Paul's got grandkids. None of my other siblings had grandkids for them yet. So mm-hmm. she said, let's see, let's see about going and living near Paul where, where we can see the grandkids more often. So they moved out here. Uh, he got a job and, and so they were here um, through the years that we were, okay. we were really struggling and we had a lot of conversations with them. Um, thankfully, my parents were pretty good. It, it definitely um, shook them. Uh, my mom, especially uh, my dad, I think already had his own questions that he was working through. Um, but they were, uh, I would say, unlike some other LDS parents, they never tried to shun me or, or do anything like that. Um, they were concerned and they expressed their concerns and we had some difficult conversations, but hmm. uh, nothing, nothing like what some other people go through. How, how old were your kids when you left the LDS church? Let's see. Uh, our oldest was 14. Oh, wow. And our youngest was, uh, three. So yeah, pretty young. It's easy to forget just how old you are, Paul. Um, so (laughs) well, was, was that difficult with your kids as you were exiting, uh, were, I'm assuming the three-year-old, you know, wasn't latching onto a lot, probably didn't affect your three-year-old's life very much through those years. But what about the older kids? How, How did that go? 
Yeah. Initially our oldest, um, I'm sorry, she was 16. So she had been attending early Mormons, early morning seminary at the LDS church for a few years. Um, and, uh, initially when we decided to leave, she told us that she wanted to stay. Um, it was a big, um, I think cultural and social shock for her, the idea of leaving because she had made a lot of friends in the LDS church and, um, you know, especially out here where there are fewer Mormons than, than maybe in, in Utah, it, it's really important for them socially, um, at school, uh, you know, so they feel like kind of outsiders. So that group really coheres for them and becomes uh, really important to them. So she initially told us she wanted to, wanted to stay. Um, we told her we would support her in that. Um, if that's what she wanted to do, um, you know, we would drive her to church and that kind of thing. And, um, she stayed for a couple of weeks and then, um, there was a fast and testimony meeting in which, uh, one of the Bishop members of the bishopric stood up and made a comment that that was referencing our family, uh, in his testimony, just kind of talking about how he, um, he felt bad that, that such good people would fall away. And, um, she heard that and it brought her to tears. He came over to her and apologized and said he didn't realize she was in the audience that day. And he wouldn't have said that if she, if he knew she was. And, um, but it, it made her think, you know, she thought, she said, uh, you know, she came home from church that day upset. And she said, uh, you know, to us, I know you all are trying to follow Jesus. And so that comment just didn't make sense to me. Hmm. Um, and from that, from that day on, she didn't go hmm. to the LDS church anymore. She started going to the, to the Christian church with us. Wow. Yeah, for those who don't know, uh, Fast and Testimony Sunday is like open mic night uh, for a church service. <laughs> it's uh, the I think first Sunday of the month. Is that right? Uh, or last yeah. Sunday of the month? Okay, first Sunday of the month. First Sunday. So if you're looking at visiting a <laughs> Mormon church service, go on the first Sunday. You're gonna have fun, uh, or you might cry depending on what they say. So okay, that's great. Thanks for sharing that, Paul. I appreciate that, Matthew. Uh, your story. So I was uh, born and raised in Northern Utah. So around the North Ogden, Pleasant View area. Okay. And um, so my parents were both uh, raised in the church, I believe. And um, we had, uh, so we had grown up in a family where my, so my mother had already been divorced. So she had a, a son from her previous marriage. So he's my half brother. And so he was my older brother. And, um, and then there was me and then I have one sister. And so that's, that's kind of where I grew up and we were not always active in the church. So we would, I remember attending a lot when I was really, really young. Uh, I don't remember a whole lot about what I learned, but you know, I remember being in the church. Uh, and that seemed like when I was kind of around the age of nine, 10, 11, uh, that's kind of when we started going less often, you know, my family was never really strong in the LDS church in terms of, you know, practicing everything that the church you know, requires, like, you know, that. I'm not saying my parents are bad people, of course, by any means, you know, but I'm just saying that, you know, they have certain standards, like the word of wisdom, where you're not supposed to drink tea or coffee or alcohol. And so like when I was young, I did remember my parents would drink coffee and, um, and beer occasionally. Hmm. So it's not like, it's not like they would, you know, take it to excess, but you know, unless the home teachers came over, then you hide the coffee pot, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't remember us actually having really any home, home or oh, okay. teachers come over. Right. So yeah, they don't really even have to do that. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so we would, we would attend, but it was less frequent. And then, 
you know, my parents started having marital troubles when I was around 11, 12. And that's, and so my parents were divorced at 12. Um, and it was kind of then where, I mean, I, I still attended church, but my affections for the church kind of started to get weaker and weaker over time. So I was ordained to the ironic priesthood at 12, which is standard for, um, for most Latter-day Saint men, young men. Um, and then at 14, you're ordained a teacher and at 16, you're ordained a priest. Uh, so I was ordained a teacher or a deacon at 12 and a teacher at 14, but then I kind of went inactive around high school. So 15, 16. So I was never ordained a priest. Um, I should back up and say that uh, I technically am a current, I was a convert to the LDS church because I was not baptized at eight. So if you're baptized at eight, um, you, you basically just have to, you know, if you're attending church and you just pass the questions with your bishop and state president, then, you know, then you can be signed off to be baptized. But I, I was not baptized at eight. It was nothing my parents really pushed me into. And I kind of asked about it. I'm like, well, you know, don't I have to go to, you know, don't I have to be baptized to go to heaven. And my parents were like, well, I mean, that's what the church teaches, you know? So I was like, oh, well, shoot. So uh, I was like, well, I want to get to heaven. So, you know, um, so I was baptized. So I, I met with the missionaries. I received what was then the seven, uh, I don't know if it was seven, Paul, you, you did them, right? The, uh, not the, not the, uh, preach my gospel lessons, but they're the, uh, oh yeah. Gospel seven. principles. Yeah. No, it was, uh, what was it called? The, uh, the discussions. Yeah. There discussions. were seven of them. Yeah. Discussions. That's the word. It was like literally scripts to a film, you know, <laughs> and the missionary would have their lines and then the investigator would supposedly have their lines. And if the investigator, my, my dad was telling me like, or, or I can't remember if it was my dad or someone else told me, but they're like, sometimes if they didn't answer the question you may want it to, you would just repeat the same lines till you get the answer you want. <laughs> that's kind of what some people did. So that's kind of what I was taught was the, the, uh, the discussions, but I think they watered it down a bit because I was a kid. Yeah. I so think I was, that's, um, that's what I got in this really old, you probably see me posted on social media, this really old missionary manual where, yeah, the teaching principles, um, where it goes through and yeah, for discussion number one, here's your outline discussion two, And it's got the, the script and everything. Yeah. Real, real goofy. Yeah. I forget the elders, like in, in the scripts, they were like elder Brown and yep. uh-huh. Brown. Mr. Something. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, so by the time I served a mission, uh, they had already gone to preach my gospel. So they don't do those anymore. But yeah, when I was, so I took the mission, the missionary discussions and I was baptized at 10 the same day as my sister um so yeah so going back to you know i kind of went to inactivity around 15 16 and then kind of felt convicted you know uh around college so i started going to college and i had made some moral mistakes in my life and i felt really guilty about not like serious ones but were like where you know i had a falling out with certain people and so that kind of really pricked my conscience and so i started kind of feeling like i needed changes in my life and so i started investigating the church again and started you know, going active again and, you know, thinking to myself, you know, if I can get a testimony, like everybody talks about of the book of Mormon, then I'll serve a mission. And so, um, so I started attending and that was, that was around, yeah, it was around 2005. I started reattending. And I think that was the year that, uh, the LDS, uh, prophet Gordon B. Hinckley was doing the book of Mormon challenge where you're supposed to read the book of Mormon in a year. And, uh, everybody was asking me, so how far are you? And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, well, with the challenge, I'm like, what challenge? Like, you know, like, like, I haven't gone that long. Like, what is that? What is happening? You know, and they're like, oh, the, the prophet, he said, you know, read the Book of Mormon. I'm like, oh, okay. So I was, I had a, a late start, but, you know, I did read the Book of Mormon and I was really studying a lot of stuff. I even studied, you know, like other books like Talmadge. I really love Talmadge. I loved his uh, great apostasy and Jesus of Christ. I didn't read yeah. all of Jesus of Christ, but I did read all of the great apostasy. Um, I read parts of his, uh, the articles of faith. 
Uh, I liked McConkey also. So yeah. I liked his uh, Mormon doctrine in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So basically, you know, I, I, I felt like I was reading and praying the Book of Mormon and really desired a testimony. And I felt like I got, you know, this kind of burning in the bosom at, at a certain point that, that confirmed to me the Book of Mormon was true. And so at that point, I felt like, well, you know, that's what I've been looking for. So that's evidence I need to go on a mission. So, you know, I kind of been already preparing. Um, I took some time off of school and, and uh, just worked to save up money and uh, put in my mission papers. And so I was called to the Belgium, Brussels, Netherlands mission in 2007. So that mission comprised at the time all of the Netherlands, most of Belgium, except for a very tiny part, and part of northern France. And it was a dual speaking mission, a dual language mission. So the northern half and the west, the west side of Belgium they spoke Dutch and then the east side of Belgium and the southern part of France or, you know, the northern part of France, they spoke French, obviously. So I was called to the French speaking side. Um, so I served mostly in Belgium uh, for the cities I was called in, but I did uh, go to some French cities. I was in a tiny town called Beitung, another one called Amiens. And uh, yeah, and so Belgium, I spent uh, time in the biggest cities I spent time in were Liège, Brussels, and Charleroi, which are like the big three biggest French-speaking cities in Belgium. And um, well, Brussels is weird because a lot of people speak English there. So uh, it was a good mission. You know, I, I uh, worked my hardest and, you know, fully prepared to come home and, you know, get married in the temple and, you know, all that good stuff. So I came home and then I went back to college and I continued my studies in, in university. So I finished a bachelor's degree in engineering at the University of Utah. And then I continue on doing my master's and so when I was working and kind of finishing my master's degree that's kind of when I started uh, the question and it's weird uh the moment that I started the question was I was a at the time my calling was a Sunday school teacher and I taught um I think it was I think it was gospel principles maybe I forget but um we talked about the temple work and so I was asking people you know like so what kind of ordinances they do in the temple you know, sometimes when you get on the topic of temples, LDS get very skittish. They get very hesitant to want to mention anything. <laughs> sacred, not secret. Sacred, not secret. Yep. Um, so I was like, come on, guys. I mean, like, you don't have to tell me, like, what happens in the temple. You just have to tell me the ordinances, right? And they're like, okay, well, you know, people start raising their hand. Well, baptism of the dead. I'm like, yeah, great. So I wrote on the board, confirmation for the dead. And then, you know, they do uh, uh, endowments and uh, marriages. And then someone mentioned uh, the second endowment. And I was like, hmm. Second endowment. That sounds familiar. I remember reading a, something about that, but I told him, I don't know about that one, but I'll get back to you. Hmm. And so that kind of like, uh, that was kind of like what cracked the door open, I guess, to like starting to, you know, really dig into more church history. And I ran into uh, a lot of like Dan Vogel's work. And also it was right around the time too, where uh, was it Tom Phillips? Is that his name? He was a former uh, general authority or maybe he's an area authority. Hmm in the church in England. And uh, he had described his experience of the second anointing uh, ceremony on, uh, on the Mormon stories uh, program. So mm-hmm. like reading that and uh, you know, it just didn't feel right to me that only certain people had access to the special ceremony to guarantee eternal life. And there, and then, uh, you know, with Dan Vogel's work, I also looked into the three and eight witnesses and the restoration of the priesthood and how, you know, there's different, different accounts and, dates have been changed and the differing accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision and like, you know, the, the book of Abraham, you know, compared to the, the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language and how he can tie the different characters up to uh, the papyri that he had. So, you know, that he got it from those papyri. It's not like there's some missing papyri. He got mm-hmm. it from those ones. And he claimed they said these things. 
And it was just a rabbit hole that I was going down further and further and further. And I thought that I was going to get out of it on the other end of the stronger testimony. And it turns out that uh, I didn't. Like, it just kept getting worse and worse. And I kept getting your, more and Your more shelf was unable to hold all of it. Your, <laughs> your shelf wasn't strong enough. Exactly. Yeah. I guess you could just say maybe I just didn't have enough faith. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, so, so that, yeah, it's a long story. But basically, yeah, I just started to doubt. And then I really... Uh, kind of had like that, you know, that shelf crashing moment. At the time, I was preparing to get married in the temple while I was here in New York. So I, I had left Utah after my master's and came to New York to continue my studies in engineering. And I was preparing to get married in the temple. And then I kind of had that shelf crashing moment. And I just felt like I couldn't do it anymore. You know, I'm just like, I'm done. You know, I'm done. Um, so um, the engagement ended. And like, I was kind of trying to pick up the pieces and trying to, you know, salvage testimony somehow. I was like, okay, I don't have to believe the church is completely true. I can pick and choose what I want, kind of thing. Mm. So I tried to make that work, but, you know, I, I also got into watching debates. Hmm. So in particular, I got into James White's debates because, uh, you know, I just, I just did debates on the priesthood or something on, on YouTube. And so then I, I picked up the one with him and, and Mitch Pacwa, and then also the debate on him with the, the papacy. So I, I just loved, you know, debates. I just ate them up because mm-hmm. Mormons don't really debate that way, typically. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're starting to get into that now, you know, with certain young apologists, but they don't really engage that much in that way. So the fact that there was this intellectual debate and then you could actually look at the Bible and say, Oh, there's answers there. It's as, as literally say, you kind of figured the Bible was just a mishmash of missing documents and just, you know, corrupted texts and things like that. But you can actually look at it and get reliable answers from it. Like really kind of surprised me a bit. So um, through that, you know, God kind of used that process and, you know, with James White, with his program, the dividing line, I would, I would read my, my, you know, my, LDS, you know, quad, my, my King James version of the Bible mm-hmm. while well, he's exegeting uh, John chapter six and he's going through, you know, verse by verse talking about how, you know, using that to, in reference to Roman Catholics. And he's just talking about how Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and, and I will lift him up in the last day. And he was talking about it. And I was just really struggling with it. Cause I couldn't, I just couldn't refute the words on the page. You know, I was like, well, that's what Jesus said, you know? So how am I, you know, how am I going to go against that? So mm-hmm. I tried to integrate that into my Mormon faith and I, at some point, I was like, well, maybe I can be a Trinitarian Mormon kind of thing. I was reading his Forgotten Trinity <laughs> on the bus <laughs> like, ride. To like church. Joseph originally was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I was trying I was trying to make that work. And, you know, I kind of just got to a point where I was also reading his uh, The God Who Justifies along alongside while reading Romans chapters one through five. You know, it really trying to digest it. And I was on the church. Cor- I was on I was on the street corner waiting for the bus again to go to church while reading that. And I really like it just slapped, you know, like when you read something several times, it doesn't make sense or it doesn't really hit you. But like for some reason that day, like when I was reading Romans three and four, I was like, yeah, there's really nothing I can do to be justified. Hmm. So why do I need the temple ordinances? Why do I need the priesthood? Why do I need all these other things? The LDS church claims that you need to return to live with God when it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So I felt like at that point. I really had to make a choice. I was like, well, I've either got to side with the Bible or I've got to side with what I've been taught my entire life. Mm. And I was just thinking about, okay, if I stand before God, you know, I'm going to be judged and I'm going to either, you know, side with the LDS church or the Bible. I'm like, well, if the Bible's wrong, then I'll be wrong with kind of a thing. Mm. So it was, that was kind of like the the turning point where I officially, you know, decided, well, I'm not, I'm just not going to go anymore. So I think I went that day, but I was like, just really not into it. And uh, so I left and I officially resigned in 2017 um, I had also started attending several churches. So there was a, there was a Presbyterian church nearby an OPC church that I started attending and a reformed Baptist church. So I'd attended both kind of trying to figure out which ones I would uh, line up with more. So I eventually uh, decided to join the reformed Baptist church. So that's the, 
a church I'm a member of now uh, since uh, 2019 when I was baptized there. Hmm. So, uh, and then uh, Paul and uh, Michael Flournoy bring me into this whole uh, hmm. out of brightness thing at some point. I can't forget when that was 2019, probably hmm. uh, when they kind of broke me into it. So yeah. And it's been great ever since. Yeah. You've, you've grown a lot in a very short amount of time in your theological knowledge and you, I mean, evolved uh, again, using a word that's more of a uh, cultural word than a word I would like to use, I guess, but in a very short amount of time, I mean, we're talking about you left the LDS church during Donald Trump's presidency. And, uh, you know, Paul, it was what Jimmy Carter's presidency when you left. So, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, you know, it's very fresh. Everything's very fresh for you still, I imagine. What's your family dynamic? Like how have they been through the last few years for you changing so much in such a short amount of time? Yeah. So for my mom, um, so like I said, my mom and my dad had divorced and, and they had both remarried. So my mom and my stepdad, they're really great. Uh, they're, they're not very religious, so they don't really attend church. So they were just more confused about why mm. I canceled the wedding kind of a thing. You know, they were yeah. kind of left in the dark. I wasn't telling them about all the struggles I was going through. So they're out of the blue. They just saw that, you know, the, the weddings canceled and they were completely. So that was the thing that kind of shocked them the most. But um, as far as the religious thing, you know, my mom was kind of like, well, you know, you're smart. You can figure it out, you know, do do what you think is right kind of thing. It's kind of mm-hmm. how she handled it. So she's been supportive that way. Uh, and my dad, um, yeah, we've had some, we've, we've had some uh, difficult conversations, but I kind of just had to lay it on him and say, you know, like, I just don't believe like I used to. And, you know, I, I don't, you know, I just don't think the biblical Romans inspired word of God and kind of shared within the gospel that, you know, we trust in Christ alone and it's him and his finished work that, that justifies us. Um, not anything we do or any, you know, or any works we do for the dead or for ourselves, those don't do anything for us. And so we've had some conversations since then. Um, and thankfully he's, he's been supportive. You know, I think it's just the fact that he's just happy that, you know, that, you know, I haven't gone atheist or, you know, I haven't turned to drugs or whatever. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's just happy that, you know, I'm doing something, you know, to, you know, positive, I guess he, yeah. he doesn't like, uh, I've, I've given him an uh, English standard version of the Bible because he mentioned to me once that he struggles to understand the Bible to read it and understand it. And so that's why he reads the book of Mormon. And I'm like, well, you know, you don't have to read the King James version. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a great version, but there's plenty of other versions out there that are also great. So I give him an English standard version. And so, yeah. So thankfully it's been pretty, it's been pretty good. And I feel very blessed um, by God and, and to know, you know, there are some people that, and, you know, I, it was unfortunate to, to not be married, but I think in the long run, you know, I thank God that, you know, that you know, she was able to find somebody else that was, you know, a Latter-day Saint because that can be very messy, you know, oh, man. Faith relationships. We see it all the time out here where people get into a mixed religion marriage, um, where the person's a Christian, just really naive, or maybe, you know, at the time of marriage, neither one of them were Christians and then one of them becomes a Christian. And that is, I think one of the great, uh, just non-biblical, extra biblical, I should say, not non-biblical, extra biblical evidences that Christianity and Mormonism are different. <laughs> you get two of them married. It doesn't work out very well. Uh, they're not the same. So, wow. Okay. Well, appreciate you guys sharing. Appreciate that a lot. Uh, really, really just appreciate you guys and what the Lord's done through your lives. You know, we see each other interact in these Facebook groups we're part of and stuff. And I just really respect the way you guys go about your dialogue. I respect the way you present things in your podcast. I just have a lot of respect for both of you. And as someone who benefits from your, your content, just 
I'm thankful for what the Lord's done in your lives. So, um, I, I want now to transition to, uh, imagine like maybe next to you in the room is your peak Mormon self from years gone by. Okay. So we're <laughs> the peak Mormon version of you <laughs> from the past. I, I want to interact with that person a little bit. Uh, now that you are where you are, this is a conversation I've wanted to have uh, for quite some time. And I think you guys are perfect for this. Um, you know, Matthew, you mentioned the phrase and even said that you experienced this burning in your bosom. Uh, both for both of you, I mean, I want, I want both of you to comment on this just whenever, but did you really have a burning in your bosom when you were in that mode, when you were seeking to get confirmation from God that the book of Mormon was true and that Mormonism was right overall. And, and how do you process that experience now? Well, I mean, how do you process that as a Christian looking back? I'll go. Um, so did I have a burning in the bosom? Yes. Um, I had, when I started to really prepare for my mission, which was in that year, uh, post graduation from high school, uh, and, and prior to my 19th birthday, um, I started to realize that, you know, okay, I, I'm a Latter-day Saint by birth. Um, and everybody talks about these testimonies. Uh, and I've, of course, had stood up and borne testimonies and fast and testimony meeting, but I kind of realized, you know, that I had some work to do to determine if I really believed it enough to go out and preach it. Um, so I started reading the Book of Mormon. Um, I had never read it all the way through. Uh, before there's kind of a cliche among Mormons, you know, that you start reading and you get to the, the Isaiah passages in second Nephi and you stop reading because oh. it's kind of hard to understand. If you um, make it through that, the quicksand of Alma will sink you. <laughs> yeah. The war <laughs> chapters are pretty bad. So, um, so yeah, I had never read it all the way through and uh, started doing that. Um, I had a, excuse me, I was working at the same uh, electronics firm that my dad was working at mm. and the, uh, the, the guy who co-founded that company and, and was, uh, the CEO was a stake president. So, you know, they had me programming chips to, you know, microchips to put into different components. They used to build like the, the ratings boxes for AC Nielsen. Uh, they used to build you know, other health, uh, for like health, um, equipment for that was used in hospitals and that kind of thing. So, um, they had me programming microchips and the process was I'd, I'd stick a microchip in the, in the machine, pull a little lever down. So it would lock it in and, you know, hit the enter button on the computer and it would run a, a process to program it over about five minutes. So I would use that five minutes to read the book of Mormon. Mm. And I never got in trouble because like I said, the, the CEO, he'd walk by and he'd see me and he'd, he'd mm. kind of encourage me because he was a stake president, you know, and knew I was uh, preparing for a mission. So really started to kind of fall in love with the, the book of Mormon, um, enjoyed its narrative. It's not a, it's not a boring book. It has, it has an interesting story that it tells if, if you're into like fiction and I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be offensive and say it's fiction. I'm just saying like the, the narrative flows well and it's, it's interesting, you know, it has some characters that you can kind of connect with and that kind of thing. So, um, enjoyed all of that all of that about it. And, um, and I hadn't really ever read, uh, you know, the Bible all the way through either read, had read portions and memorized certain passages as part of my seminary curriculum in high school. But, um, the book of Mormon was really kind of 
it, it was what I measured scripture by, you know, I just kind of uh, adopted the idea that, yeah, that's how scripture comes about. You know, a prophet gets some plates or some hidden writings and, and brings them forth. And, you know, that, that was kind of my idea of how scripture worked. I didn't have a very uh, sophisticated view of, of revelation and inspiration at all. Um, so, you know, really started to enjoy the book of Mormon, but um, knew that if I was going to go out and preach it, I'd have to pray about it. Um, so one night, uh, I was up late by myself, uh, in my parents' living room, uh, doing some reading in the book of Mormon and, and decided that that was the night I was going to kneel down and pray about it. So I knelt down by the side of the couch and, and started to pray and ask God, you know, is, is the book of Mormon true? Is Joseph Smith, a true prophet? And, um, you know, the way I've always described it is it, it's kind of like a, uh, simultaneously like warm water was being poured over me, but also like a radiating of warmth out from the center of my chest. And And that's very similar. I mean, that whole scene that you just painted there is very similar to the first vision account that Joseph describes, right? Where he goes to kneel and pray in the woods asking which church to join. And he feels like a warmth. He feels some sort of a, I don't know. He has like an out of body, out of body experience, an existential kind of thing. I mean, is that, was that in your mind as you were doing that? Like basically similar. Yeah. That you were doing what Joseph originally did. Um, no, I don't think, I I don't think Joseph crossed my mind, but, um, the fact that I had been taught in the LDS church setting so many times from like, uh, what, what section is it? DNC 10, I think where, um, uh, Oliver Cowdery is trying to, translate because he was serving as Joseph Smith's scribe and he was trying to translate portions of the book of Mormon and it didn't work out for him. And there's a, there's this revelation supposedly given to him through Joseph Smith, where it it says, you know, you're kind of doing it wrong is kind of the message. You you have to search it out in your heart and in your mind. And then I'll let you know by a burning in your bosom. That's where that language comes from, whether or not it's true, whether or not you have the translation correct. Right. Um, So they use that to kind of teach you that that's, that's the way, you know, truth is through this burning in the bosom. So it did, that night, even it, it, it did, uh, cross my mind, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing this thing, but it's exactly what I've been told over and over mm. and over and over again, that I would experience, mm. you know? So it, it did kind of trouble me a little bit. Like, um, I don't know that I would have been, uh, sophisticated enough to think I've been conditioned to feel this, but, um, that's kind of what, what I was thinking is like, yeah. man, am I, am I only experiencing this because I've been told that's what will happen. And I did stay on my knees for a long time that night and just kind of like, I would slow my breathing and focus on my chest, the center mm-hmm. of my chest. And I realized that by doing that, I could kind of bring about a similar feeling of elevation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that bothered me because it was like, well, if I can kind of make it happen just by, meditating or slowing my breathing or doing whatever, um, then how, how can I be certain that that was God speaking to me? Mm. Um, so that, that question rattled in my head the entire time that I was on my mission. Um, Mm. when I was in the MTC, I was still on my knees late at night after my companion was asleep, uh, in the dark of our dorm room, just pleading that I would have an experience that I couldn't deny and never got anything other than that, that first time. Because so. it is built up as this is a thing that you have to have. I mean, that is your, that's your rock as a Mormon, basically. I mean, because you can always fall back on, I had that experience and that confirms to me that this is true. Right. And, and yeah, and if you're questioning that, then 
you can be swept away by anything, I guess is mm-hmm. how they, how they would teach that it, Matthew, similar type of burning. Yeah, it was very similar. Uh, I just wanted to really to quote, it was section nine. I think that Paul's alluding to in hmm. the doctrine and covenants. Uh, yeah. in reference to when he was trying to translate and couldn't uh, do it. Um, it says, do not murmur my son uh, verse six, for it is wisdom in me that I have dealt with you after this manner. Behold, you have not understood. You have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought, save it was to ask me. But behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. And if it be right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. But if it be not right, you shall not have no such feelings, but you shall have a stupor of thought that shall cause you to forget the thing which is wrong. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of like the, yeah, that's like the, uh, I don't know what you want to say. That's like the crux of how revelation is supposed to work getting your testimony so it was very similar you know i felt like uh yeah just like warm tingling you know comforting sensation i felt like that was confirming uh what i was um what i was feeling and uh uh to 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 be honest the the fever i've had is actually kind of felt like a warm burning in the bosom (laughs) uh so uh but but yeah like i i kind of started to have doubts just in general when i was you know just doubting in the church uh you know based on its history because even before then you know it was confusing to me that the same experience, like Paul had said, you could have that same experience in other ways. And for me, it would be like if you're watching Disney movies or something with like really emotional music, you know, or, or like, you know, hear someone giving a story that's not even religious in any way. And, you know, you feel that same warm burning in the bosom. And I'm like, okay, well, how do, you know, my brain kicks in and thinks like, okay, well, how am I discerning whether this is God trying to tell me truth versus just my feelings? Mm-hmm. And I think, and I think, um, wasn't it, uh, was it, it was either Joseph Smith or Brigham Young that said that revelations either come from God or from man or from the devil. Mm. And, and, and I know for certain that Brigham Young uh, said that, you know, even the devil can mimic the burning in the bosom. And so it's like, well, okay, well, you know, it really started to plant seeds of doubt in my mind. Like, okay, well, how do I really know it's from God or not? You know? Mm. And there were experiences on my mission. Like, uh, you know, you would, we were always told to pray, to know where to go to talk to. And there was one time where I just felt, I felt really confident, felt really good that God was leading me and uh, my companion at the time to go down the certain street. And my companion at the time was like, okay, let's do that. You know, sound, he hesitated a bit, but he went, uh, but he went with me. So we went down that street and we started knocking on doors. And one of the houses we saw had like a, you know, the, the star of David, Jewish star of David outside and uh, knocked on the door. Nobody answered, but some guy just came outside. And so we were going to start talking to him, but he just charges right at my companion. Right. And we're like, okay, uh, I don't know what to do in this situation. So we started hurrying, walking outside, you know, past his fence. Uh, he gave a very hard kick to my companion in the rear end. Uh. And he sucker punched me in the face. And it was raining really hard that night. So it was kind of hard to see anyways. And he sucker punched me and my glasses flew off and we're like on the ground somewhere. And I'm like, okay, this is weird. And uh, mm. I was like, well, that's so weird. You know, I felt like God was telling us to go that way. And my companion was like, Actually, you know what? I didn't want to tell you, but I felt a re- I felt a really sinking <laughs> feeling in my stomach. You know, not okay. to go down that way. <laughs> yeah. So why didn't you want to tell me? <laughs> Hindsight's yeah. twenty twenty, companion. <laughs> exactly. So th- there were experiences like that where it felt like, okay, God was telling me one thing, God was telling somebody another thing. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? And and like those experiences just made me really begin to doubt the reliability of trusting your feelings uh, for truth. Yeah. Uh, have you guys ever looked back at those experiences and thought? demons i mean how much have you entertained that idea on this side of your understanding of who god is and who man is and angels and demons and all that have you thought that could have been a demon messing with me 
Uh, personally, I never really thought about that. Um, I just figured it was, you know, just the, the flesh wanting to seek after religious affections or religious experiences through, you know, through carnal means, I guess. Mm. You know, that's kind of always seen it. But I mean, that's something to consider. It's certainly possible. Yeah, I haven't given that too too much serious thought either. I've, I've always just kind of understood it to have been pressure I was putting on myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, when I was in high school, basketball was my life and um, had a difficulty at the first high school where I was. Um, there was a changeover in coaches there. And so uh, my, my skills were less valued than, than others. And, and so it wasn't a hard decision for me to make to go to the, the new school. And then that, uh, like I said, it, it brought me into a whole group whole new group of friends and, and a kind of a whole new relationship with the LDS church. And so I was in this situation where it was like um, my dreams of playing college basketball weren't coming to fruition. So it was time for me to turn my attention to serving a mission. And, hmm. and in that pressure, I think I really wanted to believe. And I think, you know, that, that was why I experienced what I did. Sure. Yeah. Thinking about, uh, you know, again, going back to peak Mormon, Matthew and peak Mormon, Paul, uh, at that time, you would have said, of course, that you believed in the Bible, the Bible's in the standard works. It's in the quad and and everything else that you use as a Latter-day Saint. And you would have said the Bible is from God, even that it it's, it's God has given the Bible to us yet. You didn't really think that, right? I mean, <laughs> I, that, that's the way I feel whenever I'm interacting with Latter-day Saints today. It's like, okay, yeah, you say that, but you don't believe that. I mean, is, I don't know. As you look back, how do you process that? Yeah, definitely. I, I grew up in the, in the um, time when it was Spencer W. Kimball and then Ezra Taft Benson was the, the prophet. Um, and he, you know, he, he made a big, he's known for making a big push on the book of Mormon and really pushing the, uh, the, the, the quote uh, from Joseph Smith, that it's the keystone of our religion. And, mm-hmm. you know, we talked about it, you know, what it means that, that it's a keystone and an arch a lot in, in, in church. So definitely kind of had the, in my mind, the book of Mormon, uh, on a higher, uh, shelf on the bookshelf than, than the Bible. I know a lot of Latter-day Saints will say, no, they go side by side. But, uh, in my mind, it was, it was in a higher place because I grew up in a time when the teaching from the LDS church was it, it clarifies the Bible. Um, and so anything I would have read in the Bible that, was troublesome to me that maybe made me question some aspect of LDS doctrine, I would have immediately subsumed that to where it's more clear in the book of Mormon. Right. So that's, and, that's and how nothing I clarifies it. the book of Mormon. I mean, book of Mormon needs no clarification, right? Right. Right. Well, I mean, the only thing that in, in LDS teaching, the only thing that can clarify the book of Mormon or, or, or rightly interpret any scripture is, is the word of the prophet. Right. Um, and that's been even, uh, reduced now to the word of the, the prophet and the, and the 12 apostles, uh, as they're speaking in unison and right. in concert. Yes. Right. So, yeah. uh, it's, it's no longer that a prophet can clarify, which, which allows them to kind of get off the hook with, uh, prior understandings of mm-hmm. like second Nephi 25, 23 and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very in very specific context is the their word official anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's been narrowed down 
Matthew, what, what did you think of the Bible? Uh, what, what did peak, peak Mormon Matthew really think of the Bible? Well, I kind of agreed with Joseph Smith when he said that as scripture was penned by the apostles, it was pure and uncorrupted, but through the, the machinations of sinful men, it was corrupted over time or parts were lost. And so the parts that were original um, are correct, but the, that which was corrupted is not correct. So it's kind of a strange uh, kind of like they kind of hold to like a distorted or a different sense of the inerrancy of scripture that, you know, Protestants would hold to, you know, it's, it's inerrancy, but, but they reject that any of that has been, well, okay. They reject that all of it has been correctly transmitted through time. Mm -hmm. You know, they would say that much of it or, or maybe even significant or very crucial parts of the Bible have not been transmitted correctly. And so that was part of Joseph Smith's, you know, Bible translation process was restoring that, um, restoring those lost parts. At least that's how I considered it. But most Latter-day Saints today, uh, they see it as more of a commentary on the Bible. Mm-hmm. But I, I was never taught that. I never believed that. Hmm. Yeah. Your recent episodes that you guys did with Steve James on the inerrancy of scripture, uh, those would be helpful for people to check out um, just a week or two ago. Those, I think there were three parts, right? That came out. So um, if you guys want to hear Paul and Matthew talk to a current Latter-day Saint about specifically the inerrancy issue, that's a great conversation to have. Uh, going back to your missions, did you ever lie on your mission? <laughs> Was there a time where you lied? Uh, I can imagine there would be opportunities for lying as a missionary, uh, but yeah, whether it was embellishing stories, whenever you were sharing your testimony or trying to get conversions or however, how you counted stats or were you, were you honest upfront? Good guys on your missions. I tried, I tried to be as honest as I could be, you know, um, there was, there's not really any times I can remember where like I fudged any numbers. Uh, I remember a lot of times where I felt like I screwed up, you know, I said something I shouldn't have or insulted Mm -hmm. somebody, or there was one time, uh, we were doing training. I don't know why I remember this experience, but, uh, I felt like what we were training with other missionaries, you know, getting like example situations when you're talking to somebody on the street. And I, I said something that I thought was very manipulative afterward. I'm like, yeah, why would you say that? You know? Like, uh, we were, you know, it was a, it was a mock situation where you're teaching an investigator and you're trying to challenge them to baptism. Mm-hmm. And I said, and I said something along the lines of, well, you know, baptism is pleasing to heavenly father and you really don't want to let your heavenly father down, do you? Hmm. And, uh, they're like, well, no, you know, I'm like, so well, you want to be baptized? And I don't know. I, at the time I felt like didn't feel good about that. I was like, yeah, you know, you kind of probably don't want to manipulate people into baptism. Hmm. Uh, but as far as like actual just outright lying, I don't really, there's not really any situation. I'm sure I did, you know. I mean, people lie all the time. So um, I'm sure I did, but there wasn't any egregious things that I can remember. Um, looking back, I would say that, yes, I did. Because I, I, I knew that I harbored doubts about the veracity of my experience praying about the Book of Mormon. Um, and yet I would, in Hungarian, say, you know, I would say, I know that the Book of Mormon mm. is true. Right. And um so that, that ate at me, uh, towards the end of my mission, though, I, I started to change my language and I would say, I believe rather than I know, mm. um, because I felt like belief was a choice, even though, and it allowed me the, the, the leeway to continue to study and, and, and see if I actually did believe 
rather than saying I know uh, because of a spiritual experience that I that I had reservations about. Hmm. How much? <laughs> How much did you guys understand of your baptism when you got baptized? Matthew, I know you, you weren't baptized at eight. It was later. And you, you talked to that point a little bit. Um, but I, I don't know. So often when I hear stories of when Latter-day Saints got baptized when they were kids, it's like they just knew there was cake and ice cream afterwards. And that's about all that they knew. Uh, did, you, did you guys actually know what was going on or was it just, here's what we're doing? Yeah, to add on to what you said, I, so I kind of mentioned my story a little bit that I felt like, well, if this is a requirement to get to heaven, you know, I want to get to heaven. So, you know, I've got to do it. Um, and I, I kind of had some kind of level of understanding that LDS believed that your sins are washed away, you know, like when you go into the bathtub, you know, they talk about this. It's like a cleansing of your sins. Um, but I don't think I quite understood the gravity of like this idea in the Bible, you know, when Christ, you know, it, beginning with John's baptism and, you know, with the Christian baptism, it was, it was it was dying to Christ, you know, and rising with Christ. And it's like, you're, you're really committing, you're, you know, you're, you're witnessing that Christ has already done something for you and to you and that you're willing to sacrifice even, you know, all of yourself to, to, for him. So I didn't really understand the gravity of what it meant to, to, you know, to, at least under the LDS belief, they still believe that it's something that you should commit your entire life to at the time. So it's something I came to an understanding later and, as we talked about in one of our episodes, I read later in teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith that he believed that when you're baptized as a Latter-day Saint, that if you're not already a literal descendant of a tribe of Israel, that your blood is changed mm-hmm. the moment you're baptized into Israelite blood. And I was like, hmm. And I was like, that's kind of cool, <laughs> but that's, uh, can we test that scientifically? That's like, <laughs> that's like one of the key ways to show that Mormonism is very different from Jehovah's Witnesses. They, they, Nick's blood transfusions, <laughs> but Joseph yeah. said there's you know, automatic blood transfusion when you go into the water. And, and does that play into the, cause isn't it that the patriarchal blessing you find out if you're Ephraim or Manasseh, is that kind of where that comes from too? Yeah. Yeah. That's part of it. Uh, for the most part, most Latter-day Saints, well, particularly, you know, lighter skin Latter-day Saints are going to be from Ephraim. Okay. Uh, most people who are native American or, you know, South American, or uh, Hispanic are going to be Manasseh, I would say the majority. Um, there was one person on my mission who was Jewish, who was from the tribe of Judah. Um, those are the weirdest, you know, that's the only case I've heard of that. Yeah. I would say at eight, I did not uh, understand what I was doing. I, I have some vague memories of going to the bishop's interview prior to my baptism and my parents being there and feeling anxious because I wasn't able to answer the questions that I was being asked with the right answers that they were looking for. Um, but somehow I made it through anyway. Um, and you know, my dad baptized me and when, so around that age, we had a, a membership to, I I don't think it's probably there anymore, but it was the Northwest multi-purpose center, uh, over near Rose park. And it was like a, you know, there was a swim pool there and it was like a gym and, and we would go there and swim. And my sister and I took swimming lessons there. Um, so I remember going there with my dad and, um, swimming and then we would change and we'd, you know, go sit in the sauna and there'd be other, you know, old LDS men sitting in the sauna. Uh, and it was kind of like a, I don't know, it it made me feel like part of the men's club, I guess, you know, Mm -hmm. sitting there with the guys, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, I felt like when I went to the tabernacle to be baptized, it was sort of like that. We went into a, you know, into a locker room and changed and came out. And there were a bunch of people from 
bunch of kids from my school there, you know, cause it was like a stake baptism. It wasn't just our ward. Uh-huh. So I saw kids that I didn't go to church with, but that I went to school with. Uh, and some kid, you know, one kid that I remember in, in particular, I won't mention his name, um, but I didn't know he was LDS and he was there getting baptized and he was kind of a jerk at school. So I was kind of surprised, like, but I was like, oh, I guess that's what baptism's about. But uh-huh. I didn't have any kind of concept of, of sin. I knew that I was being told that, um, this was the age of accountability. This was the age at which I would start to be accountable for my sins. Um, and, and that didn't really make sense to me. Like, okay, so why am I being baptized if there's really nothing yet to wash away? Um, but again, it, it, I kind of conceived of it as like, like joining the men's club, right. It's, it's what we all do. And what I've read on baptisms, which I don't know if it's a, if there's a section in doctrine and covenants that talks about that, I can't, I, I don't know. I can't remember where I read that, but it, it basically, the way it's presented is kind of like, okay, parents, if you don't get your kids baptized at eight, you're responsible for their sins that they go on to commit from that point forward. It's kind of how I've understood that. Um, is it from a section in doctrine and covenants that talks about when to be baptized or where's the, where's the original source work on that? Uh, it's in the book of Mormon, right, Matthew, uh, that, that talks about the age of eight being the account of the age of accountability. Um, I believe so. Yeah. It's um, yeah. It's in the same area of the book of Mormon. I, it's, it seems like it's, it's either in Mormon or Moroni. I can't remember which, um, but it, it talks about, um, you know, that, that uh, Michael has called this out on our podcast a few times that even thinking about infant baptism uh, you're worthy of hell. If you, if you think about that, um, and then it kind of lays out the age for the age of accountability. Okay. Um, I guess, yeah, what I was reading was before must've been DNC 68. Um, their children shall be baptized for the remission of their sins when eight years old and receive the laying on of hands. Um, and they should also teach their children to pray and to walk uprightly before the Lord. But there was something I had read. Um, oh, here it is. It's in verse 25 of that same section. And as much as parents have children in Zion or in any of her stakes, which are organized, that teach them not to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, the son of the living God, and of baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands when eight years old, the sin be upon the head of the parents. Hmm. I just remember reading that thinking, well, that makes baptizing your kids pretty selfish. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, uh, I'm getting this off of my account and I'm throwing you in the water real quick, you know, uh, like that's, that's kind of rough. So, uh, yeah. And, and you said you were baptized at the tabernacle at temple square, right, Paul? That's right. So is that like the tabernacle? Is that the place with a huge organ or which, which, which parts? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's the big domed building. And, uh-huh. and at least, uh, back then in the Southwest corner, um, there's kind of a basement door you can go down into oh, okay. the baptistry that's down there. I was going to say, I've been in there several times. I was just in there a few weeks ago, listening to a organ recital actually. And, um, okay. Didn't know there was a secret basement section. So <laughs> I'll have to ask about that. Uh, one of the sister missionaries next time I'm there. Um, obviously baptism is just one of the many ways within the Latter-day Saint religion that, People are earning their righteousness. It's a works righteousness religion. Uh, in that sense, it's anti-Christian. And I'm just wondering, again, going back, thinking of your mindset back then, were you consciously aware of earning your righteousness? Was that something that you were consciously doing when you were living that life? Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah. My mom, especially was someone who uh, struggled for all of her life uh, to feel like she had done enough to merit uh, the celestial kingdom. Mm. And it's something that, that bothered her to the very end. Um, so, you know, growing up in, in, you know, my parents' house with her expressing that feeling um, whenever she felt like she had done something or, or failed to do something that she should have done. Um, yeah. I grew up with the, with the sense that had to earn it um, for sure. And, and that included, um, you know, making sure that you repented properly for every sin that you committed, you know, on a daily basis, you're thinking back when you kneel at night to what did I do today? What did I not do that I should have done? And you're trying to make sure you're uh, asking God for forgiveness for every one of those things. And if there's something that you've done, that's so serious that, that, you know, requires uh, confession to the Bishop, you're making sure you're doing that uh, on a regular basis as well. So definitely felt that way. Yeah. Similar. Well, yeah, I, I just remember really struggling, especially on my mission because I felt like in, in kind of baked into the LDS mindset is this idea that if you obey, God will bless you kind of a thing. Mm. Um, and uh, so, you know, I felt like I saw all these missionaries are having success and, you know, baptisms. And I felt like I wasn't, that wasn't happening for me. And I thought it was because I wasn't righteous enough you know, I wasn't obeying enough. And uh, I just felt like I was on a constant uh, hamster wheel of, trying to reach this level of righteousness and just falling off the hamster wheel completely and then having to drag myself back into it and feeling like I just couldn't do it anymore. And there were always passages of the book of Mormon and the Bible, and, well, not so much the Bible because I didn't really know the Bible very well, but passages in the book of Mormon that are, that sound very biblical to a lot of Protestants. Um, like the, I think it was the people of uh, King Benjamin, like he gives them this really long discourse in Messiah three through five ish somewhere around there. And at the end of it, they kind of all bow before him and, you know, they like, they, they make a covenant with God and they're, you know, they, they plead for forgiveness and, you know, and then they they all have this kind of like born again experience and um, forgiven of their sins. And that always just like really, uh, that always really attracted me because, you know, it's like, man, I wish, I wish you could have that experience all the time, you know, like, because as soon as you have that experience, you're going to go off and sin again and you're back at square one, it feels like. And so I just always felt like you were never going to be quite good enough. And, and, you know, a lot of Latter-day Saints, we talk about this in some of our, some of our episodes, like some, a lot of the way that LDS kind of like, you know, kind of like try to not worry about it is they say, well, God just asks you to do your best. You know, you don't have to be perfect, just do your best. And that's, that's the way they get over the idea that you have to be perfect. But in reality, you can't just do your best when it comes to work righteous, righteousness. And I think they know that, mm-hmm. but they don't want to admit it to themselves. So they just, it's another shelf item. It's like, well, I don't have to be perfect. I'll just keep trying. You know, that's good enough. And yeah, but there's no real assurance. You know, it's it's kind of just themselves trying to assuage those that guilt that you're constantly trying to get rid of. Yeah, what is it? The Moroni ten thirty two deny yourself of all ungodliness. That's more than do your best. That's that's be perfect. Yeah, and it's it's some people interpret that passage differently. I think I tried to look in previous LDS talks about that. Uh, where they've talked about it and the only one I could find, and I can't remember who said it, but they're basically saying it's, it's basically submit yourself to the entire LDS system, you know, baptism, endowments, priesthood, obey the commandments, follow your leaders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, there's no way I can do this. You know, yeah, this is already when I was doubting. <laughs> so uh-huh. I was like, how, how am I going to reach that? It's impossible. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, we had Jackson Washburn on to talk about that passage in particular. He had written an, an article uh, on that passage. So if if listeners want to hear us discuss that in depth, um, you can listen to that episode on the Outer Brightness podcast. But um, you know, he he points out that you know um, the the second part of that passage. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase. It kind of points out that it, you know if if you become perfected in Christ, you can in no wise deny the power of God, right? Something like that. So um, it. He he tried to make the case that well it's it's ultimately you know Christ and and his merits that you're relying on fully uh, through that you know deny yourself as well on godliness process which he would say is sanctification hmm. um, but that you know the problem with that is that you have other passages in uh, LDS scripture like DNC one thirty uh, I'm not sure of the verse but it you know there's a law irrevocably decreed in heaven uh, upon which all blessings are predicated that you know whatever you receive as a blessing from God comes from obedience to a law that's tied to that blessing. Um, so <clears throat> obedience and perfect obedience is the only thing that possibly could result in exaltation in the celestial kingdom. If you take that, that passage in doctrine and covenants one thirty seriously. Yeah. And we, and we would agree. Uh, it's just not our own obedience that gets us right. there. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. That's, it's just so wild to think about, the pressure that's on a Latter-day Saint to like, you know, like the phrase you use, Paul, to earn it, uh, <laughs> cause you just can't, uh, yeah. Um, you know, this, we, we want this to be a blunt conversation. So we're, now we're going to put the blunt and blunt conversation. Cause I've never heard this question asked. So go back to your peak self, peak Mormon. Did you envision your celestial future? And if so, what did that look like? Uh, no. So I never pictured myself having a planet or multiple wives or, or anything what? like that. What? That's like, to me, you know, it's one of the most unique parts of Mormonism. <laughs> How did you not let your mind go there? I was too focused on, uh, on trying to be perfectly obedient. Um, yeah. I didn't have time to imagine that I actually would reach it because I was too, <laughs> too, uh, just too much in despair that I couldn't. Mm. Um, but I will say this, uh, I did have a, a very strange conversation uh, with my wife, who at the time was my fiance. And I'm, I'm surprised that she married me after that conversation. So um, uh, after my mission and uh, we were, we were meeting in a different building for our, our ward meetings than we typically met in because they were remodeling ours. So we were sharing a building. Normally you share a ward building with, with two or three other wards anyway, but, but we were sharing uh, we were moved into a ward building that was already full. So um, our elders quorum and our high priest quorum would meet together on Sundays rather than separately because we had limited space. And so I found out pretty quickly that in elders quorum or in high priest quorum, they speculate a lot. And uh, they used to speculate about, you know, when are we going back to Jackson County, Missouri uh, to form Zion? When are we, when are, when are they going to bring back polygamy as a requirement um, those types of speculative questions were always, were often asked. And so um, in, in my young mind, uh, I thought, well, I guess, I guess polygamy is something that's expected to come back at some point, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I was on a drive with my, my wife, my fiance at the time uh, out by uh, Harriman, Utah, which back then was farmland, but now is all built up with houses. Yeah. Um, and we were out kind of out in the middle of nowhere and stopped and we're looking at the stars and, and, the moon and whatnot and having a conversation and, you know, she's a 
convert to Mormonism of, you know, maybe five or six months at that time. And I, I just asked her, you know, what, what would you do if they ever brought it back, you know, brought back polygamy? And she's like, well, you better not even think about it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, well, and that, that's um, part of the rule, right? She has to give you permission. So it, it is, you know, I had, I, I had to know. Right. So, but it, I'm, I am surprised that she, <laughs> she married me after that conversation. <laughs> not that I was interested in, it. I was just curious, like, how would that play out if they brought it back? You know? Yeah, for sure. Matthew, did you ever envision yourself as the sovereign? Well, I saw, I mean, you know, a lot of LDS and I think I would have felt that way too. Um, you never feel like you're going to ever, you know, you're never not, you're, you're never going to supersede or be independent of God, the father in some sense, you know, even though you will be, you know, inheriting all of his power and kind of like his glory and perfections and attributes and things like that as, as an exalted being, it's not like you can say, uh, you know, because he, he's the one who got you there. So how are you going to, you know, say, well, I don't need you anymore. or I'm better than you now. You know, you always felt like it's kind of like if you have a business partner when you're starting out, you know, uh, how does it go? Uh, Paul, you're, you're a business guy. It, the red is bad, right? The, being in the red is bad. Yeah. Being in the black is good. Right. Yep. Okay. So you're, you know, you're in the red and someone comes along and says, okay, I'll pay off all your debts and, you know, and I'll help you out. You know, how can you ever say if your business somehow makes more money than his, you could be like, Oh, well, I'm better than that guy. Kind of thing, even if that were possible. Mm-hmm. So I felt, I felt like, you know, I was always going to be submit, you know, submit to God in some sense, somehow. Yeah. And uh, we just recorded an episode with uh, Aaron Shapovala about that and how that causes a dilemma with this hierarchical structure of gods. Uh, so that'll be an interesting episode, but yeah, I just, I just longed for this idea of being, and I still do, you know, but it's a, I'm in a different perspective now, but I just longed to just be done with, the world, you know, with sin, with my own, you know, shortcomings and with Mm. feeling like I fail all the time and, um, just wanting a family, you know, I always kind of wanted a family, you know, know, wife. And so the prospect of having a wife in heaven and children in heaven was really, you know, what I really liked, but, but I also just liked the fact of, you know, the more we learned about God, the more I learned about what I would become kind of a thing. Uh, so, yeah, I did. I did think about it a lot, uh, but at the same time, I felt like Paul, where you just feel so bogged down in the quagmire of your sins and your failures, and it's like, yeah. well, that's a nice pipe dream, but I don't know if I'll ever get there. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I always thought like, well, after, even after I learned about the second anointing, you know, I was like, well, maybe, maybe if I can become a general authority, maybe I can get that second anointing, you know, and then maybe then I'll have the assurance that I need, mm. you know, so. Yeah, wow. I think there were there were times when we would sing in sacrament, like if you could hide to Kolob, you know, which is a song that <laughs> that kind of touches on that that idea where I would have momentary thoughts of, man, I guess that would be great, but it would immediately be followed by, but man, I'm so far from perfect. Yeah. I'll never get there. Now, because you mentioned polygamy, I gotta ask this too. Did you did you think that those who are in the celestial kingdom? Are going to be half they would have to practice polygamy to populate the planet that they inherit did you ever go that far in your thinking at that time because that's that's something that i've always thought about is like okay well they talk about heavenly father and heavenly mother but there's more than one heavenly mother uh did you ever think through that as a latter-day saint yeah i think i thought about it um 
I didn't, and, and really my, my family in general didn't have a very positive view of, of polygamy. Um, I mentioned my, uh, my great, great grandmother who crossed the plains with a handcart. Her, her daughter had a very negative, uh, experience with polygamy in the late 1800s, um, abandonment and, uh, and, uh, domestic abuse and that kind of thing. And so, um, polygamy in my family was not very well looked upon. Um, and I, you know, I grew up around, uh, you know, when I was up until the time I was nine, we lived down the street from a, from a duplex where some of the, the Kingston wives lived, mm. um, one of the big, uh, polygamous, uh, families there in Utah. And, and, you know, even when we moved to the suburbs, we would see, uh, polygamous families at the grocery store and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So it was kind of all around us. Um, but my sense of growing up a Latter-day Saint, uh, tied to the mainstream LDS church in, in, in Utah was that, um, most people looked upon polygamy as kind of like a, uh, maybe, maybe kind of the way, uh, Christians sometimes look at, look at Mormonism as, as a cult. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember my, my mom's cousin would come over and, and she, she did get, uh, kind of swept in occasionally. She was, she was a single woman. And so she would get swept into, um, you know, going to meetings with, with some of the polygamous sects and she would come and talk to my parents about it. And I remember they would have, you know, very, strenuous, uh, debates and, and kind of arguments with her about, uh, the doctrine and, and, and practice related or, you know, related to polygamy. And, and I remember overhearing those conversations in our home. And so we didn't really have a very, very positive view of, of polygamy. Hmm. Um, you mentioned the, the hymn, the Haida Kolob hymn. What mm-hmm. I like to break out from my Mormon library in my basement, tucked away in my storage room. I like to break out the Mormon hymnal when we have guests over who aren't familiar with Mormonism. And uh, one of the hymns I like to show them is praise to the man. Did did you all worship Joseph Smith? I have said um, that for me, Joseph Smith became an idol. And, and I mean that in every sense um, because Mm -hmm. my religion was all tied up with whether or not he actually experienced and did the things that he claimed to do. Um, and so there was a time in my life, even after my first faith crisis, uh, where I spent a majority of my time trying to run down answers to questions I had around him and his teachings. And there came a point where I just realized, you know what, I, I am focusing far more on Joseph Smith than I am on Jesus Christ and recognize that, that he was an idol in my life. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Paul. I just, with relation to the song, I wouldn't have said, I would have argued like most do that we weren't worshiping him singing that song, but, but he did become an idol in my life. Hard to get away from the words on that page. Uh, cause yeah, you read through that and it's like, how is this not worship? But well, it's funny because even on my, like, so it, it never really bothered me because, you know, you can just say praise, like you praise someone for doing well on a good job or something. But in, uh, in the French version on my mission, it was, it was even more evident to me that it kind of got on my nerves a little bit because the first line, you know, roughly translated isn't praise to the man who can be with Jehovah. It's glory to him who saw God, the father. <laughs> so I remember reading that or seeing that and I was like, yeah, that's all like, it's a little bit intense, isn't it? Like, uh, glory to him. Like, isn't God the one that gets glory? I don't know. That was kind of rubbed me the wrong way, but, 
Uh, yeah, never. I mean, obviously, an LDS is going to be offended if say they pray to Joseph Smith or that they worship him as their god. But uh, but yeah, I kind of agree with Paul is that his his Joseph Smith's experience and his teachings are so foundational to your faith as a Latter Day Saint that it's it's as crucial to accept Joseph's testimony and his teachings as it is to accept the Bible and to accept Jesus as your savior. You know, like it's a it's 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 all part of the deal. Yeah. So if you reject what Joseph Smith said, you're basically rejecting salvation. So he's just as crucial. And, you know, and a lot of times former Latter-day Saints will bring up the fact that there are fast and testimony meetings where people just testify about how they love Joseph Smith and his faithfulness. It's a small 14 year old boy who, you know, who had this vision and then, you know, they'll tack on Jesus at the end. And I, I feel like that's, I mean, you can get hyperbolic with that, but there were instances where, you know, there would be entire sacrament meeting uh, lessons about, Joseph Smith and like there was hardly any mention if any of, of Jesus or you know the atonement or anything like that so mm. it's yeah it's a little bit unfortunate I think a lot of latter Saints recognize that themselves and so a lot of their more recent uh, you know general conferences have been focusing a lot on grace what does grace mean how to attain grace and the atonement and things so I think they're trying to, to, to turn ship but I don't know how they can really become an orthodox you know Christian church with all of the temple ordinances for the dead and all, all those other things. I just don't see them becoming. No matter how big the font size for Jesus Christ becomes in the logo or uh, how much they put, you know, the, the Christus or whatever the name of that statue is on their app. Yeah. There's still obviously a major, major conflict there. And it you yep. know, surprised me, Matthew, in your story, when you said that you liked McConkie, mm-hmm. um, you know, McConkie is, kind of a firebrand depending on what circles you're in. I mean, he, he was very bold in a lot of the things he said, and he's pretty polarizing. I think in the Mormon community, you're either all in like, yes, he was, he was going for it. And I agree, or Ugh, he crossed some lines, uh, kind of more like a, like a modern Brigham Young in a lot of ways, you start talking to some missionaries or something about Brigham Young and the crazy things that he said. And, Missionaries are kind of in a weird spot because they, on the one hand, they need to defend these guys who were supposedly speaking from God and with authority. And on the other hand, they said things that clearly disagree with what they believe. So can you kind of put yourself back in that missionary name tag and (laughs) explain to me how you process that with Brigham or McConkie or whoever it may have been where you're in a situation of having to defend, but also speaking against? Yeah. So, well, it's, you know what, to be honest, like on my mission and, and things like that, I didn't really deal with a lot of uh, con- what I felt like was contradictions or trying to reconcile contradictory statements. You know what I mean? Like, I felt like uh, you should have come I, across me on your mission, man. That would have been great. <laughs> it's, it's true. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, back then I still felt like the church was still very clearly saying we're the true living church. And I think there were talks even around in the general conferences in that time where they're still saying that because we have the, the priesthood authority, that's why we're the true and church. And if you're, if you don't have this priesthood authority, you don't have proper ordinances, you know, baptism, endowments, confirmation that you need for eternal life. So like, that's, that's a clear demarcation, you either have it or you don't. And so I felt like, you know, maybe McConkie used various old language on certain things and some, some things I, I disagreed with him on a little bit. Like in his Mormon doctrine, he said that uh, basically the practice of psychology is part of the church of the devil. Mm. And so I was kind of like, well, I don't really quite agree with that because I feel like some people do have you know, disorders that do need help. Um, 
but yeah, um, in terms of like Brigham Young, I, I remember reading things about him before my mission, you know, things that he'd said about throwing, throwing a javelin through an adulterous wife's chest and all this other weird stuff, uh, blood atonement. But I kind of just chalked it up to like, well, we learn line upon line and precept upon precept. That's one thing that I think a lot of Latter-day Saints still rely upon. And they mm-hmm. say, well, you know, sometimes they're, they're seeking after knowledge. It's kind of like feeling around in a dark room and you might get a, a flicker of light here and there and they latch onto it and they're still trying to feel around. And so they'll make, they'll, they'll say things that aren't necessarily true, but you know, that's why over time the church will become kind of more true, I guess, you know, in theory. So, you know, any of those, those ideas that came from themselves as men and not as prophets would kind of get filtered out, hopefully. Um, hmm. So that's maybe kind of how I would have looked at it. Hmm. Yeah. And where my, where my questioning mind went, Matthew, after my mission, when discussing contradictions online with other Latter-day Saints and somebody would throw out that line upon line, or they're kind of fumbling around in the dark, you know, my mind went, okay, so how are they different than me? Hmm. You know, why, why should I follow them if that, if they're doing the same thing I'm doing? Um, but on my mission, Jeremy, to your question, uh, I, I remember a specific instance sitting on my bed and, and, and again, working through my goal to read all of the standard works that included the official declarations at the end of the Pearl of Great Price, right? With the end of, are they at the end of the Doctrine and Covenants or Pearl of Great Price? I can't remember. Um, but they're considered part of the standard works part of LDS canon. And I remember reading through them. And of course I had read through official declaration one, you know, uh, where polygamy was done away with as a, as a practice within the LDS church before, um, had studied it through in, in, in seminary. Um, but I remember kind of reading through that and thinking, you know, just having the question, like why, if it's not something we need to practice today, but it was once taught as something that was essential for exaltation, then why isn't it practiced today? You know, um, why would there be something withheld that isn't, isn't essential? Um, because then, then you, you, if you run down that line of thinking too far, you, you end up with, well, isn't the, the LDS church then in some sense, um, placing its members within a state of apostasy because they're not practicing something that Mm. is supposed to have been practiced. Um, So yeah, I remember that, that experience uh, specifically. Um, And, you know, other contradictions. I remember when I came home from my mission and and moved out here and and got married, Uh, I was working at uh, the insurance company I work for now uh, in a, in a clerk capacity. And, um, I would have to go down each day and get the mail from the mailroom for our appeals department. And I would spend some time talking to our security guards. We had several different security guards that worked that day shift during the week. And, and one of them was named Charlotte, a really kind, uh, older African-American woman. And we became friends and, and talked a lot. And um, we started talking about religion and I gave her a book of Mormon and I sent the missionaries her way. And mm-hmm. she was, she looked to be progressing towards uh, being baptized, uh, but then had a conversation with her uh, pastor about it. And he gave her a bunch of uh, what I would have termed at the time was anti-Mormon material that he printed off of the internet. And she brought in that stack of of materials and gave it to me with the book of Mormon back and, you know, told me that she, she couldn't uh, follow the, the road that I was asking her to follow. Um, and I tried to make the case to her, you know, that, uh, 
just because something's on the internet doesn't make it true. Anybody can put anything on the internet and the anti-Mormons are going to put all kinds of stuff out there. Um, but I took the stack and started looking through it and started reading what was claimed within the various printouts and articles and um, started to run things down. And a lot of it was related to the blacks and the priesthood issue, which is the other, the other official declaration, which I never was comfortable with. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, just started trying to think about that through her eyes, how that would have been received by her. I didn't tell her about it in our conversations. Um, I knew about it. Did I specifically withhold it? Uh, I think I probably was aware that that would probably be something she would want to know, but I did not yeah. tell That's her discussion about it. six or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, not discussion one. <clears throat> right. So I didn't tell her about it. And so I started to try to think about like, well, what must that have been like from her perspective to, you know, have had these conversations with me and, and, and trusted me and be, we kind of became mm -hmm. friends. And, and then she finds out that what I'm trying to teach her you know, the, the church that I'm trying to bring her into one time viewed her as less worthy. Cool. And um, that really bothered me. And so I started to run down like some of the things that Brigham Young said about that because they were contained in that, that packet of materials. And at first I thought there's no way he really said these, but I went home and, and pulled out my, uh, my copy of the discourses of Brigham Young and found that he did cool. in fact say these things. So um, yeah, very challenging. On, I don't know, and then this gets to, I don't know, maybe, maybe a difficult thing to, to talk about, but the people that you ran into when you were Latter-day Saints, uh, who you influenced, so not just the Charlottes that you ran into who you had a conversation with and they didn't convert, but those who either did convert or were, because of your influence, they deepened their allegiance to the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. How do you process that now knowing that you were influential in their lives to submerge them deeper into a false religion? How, how do you think through that now? Hmm. I think about it pretty often because I'm, I'm Facebook friends with a lot of people from my mission. Um, and, you know, None of them have specifically reached out to me. Uh, well, a couple of couple of missionaries I served with have reached out and talked to me about the podcast um, because I'm not uh, I'm not shy about sharing our episodes yeah. on my own wall. Um, but none of the Hungarian people that I know have reached out and talked to me about the podcast. Um, so don't know if they see it, but I I hope that they do. Um, I don't try to push it on them. Um, but if some, if, if one of them will reach out to me, I would, I would definitely have a conversation with them. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of my mission, it was really rough. I mean, Paul contested like, you know, just in Europe in general, people are very unbelieving in general. So I really struggled to even just get, get into people's doors. <laughs> so I'm kind of, you know, looking back on my mission, you know, I, at the end of it, I felt really discouraged. I felt like I didn't, you know, in some sense, I felt like I, I let God down, you know, as when I was still believing Latter-day Saint, but I still, I remember an experience where I felt like I prayed and, and asked God if my mission was okay. And I felt like he was, you know, like I felt that warm buzzing feeling again, you know, mm -hmm. saying that my mission was okay. So, so I kind of wrestled between those things, but looking back now, um, so there was one man who, who we baptized, but he was kind of already set for baptism. 
And so we were kind of just teaching him the new member lessons. He was really old. And uh, I felt, I, I do think about him a lot, like where he, you know, like where he is now. I'm pretty sure he's passed away because he was quite old and frail at the time. Mm. Um, There's another girl that we taught. And I, I think I left before she was actually baptized. Uh, it was my first area and had a really, I, I was, my companion played a prank on me, my trainer, and told me to teach her about the law of chastity in my very broken French to a girl that was basically our age. And, <laughs> and uh, it was very embarrassing. Awkward. You can, you can imagine how it went. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I think she was baptized at some point, but at some point she had health issues and we kind of just lost track of her. So uh, nobody knew where she went. And um, uh, yeah, so there was one other person that we basically taught from scratch and baptized in my last area. And I've been wanting to contact him and talk to him too, uh, to kind of let him know about my faith journey. But yeah, it doesn't, so it doesn't really bother me partially, like I said. I didn't have much success, but I do think about in general, just all the times I bore that testimony on the streets to people and maybe they don't remember my name or or my face or whatever, but like, you know, just putting it out in the world, something that, you know, now is, is not correct. Um, I mean, it, on one sense, it's as, as fallen unregenerate people, we sin in all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. And so you can't beat yourself up too much. I think in the sense of being, you know, like saying, well, you know, why did I do that? Why, why, you know, trying to always go back, you know, I just have to remember that, you know, I did what I did because I thought that's what that's, I thought that's what God wanted me to do. And I just praise God and thank him that he brought me out of it. You know, that he showed me the truth. And, and thankfully I have talked to when I came out and said that I left the church that a couple of my companions um, on my mission have told me that they've also left the church uh, and I've really, you know, I was like, you know, that's great. I, but I really want you to, you know, to cling to Jesus, you know, like, don't, you know, don't give up religion altogether. And that's what I really am afraid of. And, and same similar thing happened to people in high school that I wasn't really super friends with, but I knew since we were kids, you know, like five, six years old came out and told me that they had also left the church. Um, and so, yeah, that's why I'm just, I'm hoping also that they'll listen to our testimonies or our Facebook posts or whatever. And I have lots of friends that still haven't blocked me yet, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with all the stuff I posted. So yeah. I don't know if they just don't see it or they just, you know, uh, mute my, my posts or whatever. But I think I posted once. I was like, Hey, uh, for all of you who haven't blocked me yet. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> You're cool. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, just to kind of play off of what Matthew was saying, I, I have taken a lot of comfort as, as a former Latter-day Saint in, in Paul's words that he writes at the beginning of chapter nine, uh, of Romans. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience spares me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I have similar feelings towards my Latter-day Saint friends and family that I know, and um, you know it's why I do what I do with the podcast, yeah. um, and I I hope that it that it lands for for people. Um, I hope that that God uses it to draw people to, to his son. Um, but I also trust in the sovereignty of God. You know, I recognize that there were many people that I met on my mission who, uh, even, even though some of them were LDS helped move me further in the direction of accepting Christ alone, uh, for my salvation and, and understanding, um, that that's, that's where our salvation lies mm-hmm. is in, in Christ alone. And so, um, you know, I trust that God is sovereign and, and uh, knows what he is doing. Yeah. Amen. Well, as we wrap up, uh, again, imagine tonight after dinner, um, 
you could sit down with your former peak Mormon self, what would you say to that person? <laughs> How would you go about having a conversation with that person? What would be your tactics? Uh, at least for me being in Utah, so many of my conversations are with people who are all in. And those are really difficult conversations for me. So if for no one else's help, but my own, <laughs> how would you go about that conversation with your former self? Well, for, for my case, it's kind of cheating because, you know, we know, I know what my thoughts were and my feelings yeah. were at the time, yeah. but I, mean, you know, I think, I think so. that's fine. Customize it to yourself. That's fine. Sure. I would kind of appeal to the doubts and the guilt and the, the feeling that I felt like I was never going to live up to what I believed and what I wanted to achieve. I would ask myself, uh, my former believing self, I would say, what if you could have peace, like lasting peace? What if you could truly feel forgiven, even though you sin every day and you're still going to mess up? What if you could have that feeling and assurance that you know that Christ has secured your eternal life? What would that mean to you? Because that's what I, that's what I desire. And I felt like I never really had it, you know? So I would kind of appeal to that. And I, and I would also ask myself questions about like, how do I know, how do I know who Jesus really is? What kind of a person he is and why it's important that he is who he is? Because I, as a Latter-day Saint, you talk about how Jesus is God. Okay. Well, what does that mean? And we talked about that. I forget if it was with Aaron or with Jackson, but we talked about that. And a lot of times LDS just say those words, but they don't really ponder what that really means mm -hmm. they just say oh jesus is the son of god or that he is god but they don't really think about what that means or why it's really that important because we think of just god as just something supernatural something great and that's about it but we don't think of him as like is he is he a changing god or an unchanging god if he changes does that still make him god you know and elders don't have a problem with the changing god but when you really think about these issues yeah i want a god who doesn't change who's eternally god who's uncreated, who doesn't have a superior to whom he's accountable. The one who creates all things, the one who has all power and might and glory and who has everything in the palm of his hand. You know, he plans out everything, you know, as a lot of they saying, it feels like it kind of feels like you're, you're playing cosmic dice in terms of like, everything just seems to like, you know, we talk about God having a plan sometimes, but for the most part, it's like about obedience. You know, if you obey, God will bless you. And it feels like you're just not really in control. And so like Paul is saying, I would just, I would just talk to myself about you know, how, you, how you can have a true peace and assurance of your salvation by trusting in Christ and what he did alone. And also that, that God has got everything in his hands. You know, God is completely sovereign and that's why we can trust him. He doesn't change. He doesn't from moment to moment. He doesn't learn. He doesn't grow. He doesn't regress or progress or digress. He's, he's constant. He's a complete and sure rock that we can rest our faith and our trust in. And that's the God who you should trust in. And I think that's, that's kind of the, the route I would go with myself because I wanted something like that, something I could really grasp onto and say, you know, even my shortcomings and I, and I, you know, weeks, better weeks and worse weeks, something I could grasp onto to say, yes, that's, that's what I can at least hold on to as my assurance. Yeah. I'm with Matthew hundred percent. When I, first came out of the LDS church, I started to ask and, and, and really started to understand the gospel of grace. Um, I started to ask myself, what, what would I, what would I share with my younger self? Um, and it, you know, it was a question that was a difficult one to tackle because I went through a lot of years of, of, of study and trying to work things out from a Mormon perspective. And, you know, there's a lot of ground you can cover. You can, you can really go into LDS history or, or go deep into doctrine. And I, 
I just kind of landed at the place where it was like, you know, if I, if I had a chance to uh, speak with herself uh, and the question was real because I wanted to know, okay, what am I going to say if the LDS missionaries knock on my door? Um, it wasn't just a hypothetical. What if I talked to a younger me? Uh, because if they knocked on my door, I would be talking to a younger me. So I landed where I would share the gospel of grace uh, because that's so critical uh, for Latter-day Saints to understand. It's something that their teachings don't allow them to understand. Uh, I heard many times in fast and testimony meetings growing up from both uh, my peers as teenagers and, and adults, uh, the statement, you know, I don't know where I would be without the restored gospel. I would probably be, you know, a drunk somewhere or they would, they would, you know, put themselves in some scenario that involved uh, sin and, you know, Latter-day Saints uh, often uh, say things that are very similar to uh, the rhetorical uh, interlocutors that Paul uh, responds to in uh, in the chapters of Romans. Um, you know, what shall we say? Shall we sin all we want? You know, that kind of thing. And that's the way Latter-day Saints view it. You know, if you if you believe in grace that it's just a free gift, uh, what's going to stop you from just sinning all you want? Because that comes from a place where in their heart, they believe that their attempts at obedience are, uh, are getting them there and are keeping them from sin. Um, and it comes, it also comes from a place of, of, uh, frustration as Matthew and I both know, because also deep in their hearts, they know that their attempts at obedience and at, at, at uh, living without sin are not coming, uh, to fruition. They're not getting there. And so, um, I would share the gospel of grace with my younger self. That's good. Uh, cause it can be overwhelming because of all the differences. I mean, there's, you could talk about how God doesn't have a body. You could talk about how we didn't actually exist in the, in some pre-existence that families aren't forever, how we don't need temples. I mean, there's just like an endless list of things that could be talked about. And uh, I love how you both highlighted really some core issues of the here and now, cause all that other stuff will just come later. Right. I mean, you, it's not like you have to teach them systematic theology from the get-go, even though that's really tempting, especially for someone like me, because it's like, ah, there's so much wrong here. Uh, but but I think, yeah, getting to the heart of the issue probably seems to be wise and let everything else happen in time. And that's probably how it happened for you, you guys when you were drawn by the Lord to believe, is that just one by one over the course of years, that stuff changed, huh? Yeah, it just it all kind of falls away one by one, but, um, but that understanding of, of, you know, I can, I can trust in what Jesus Christ did on my behalf, um, and understanding the cross, uh, and what was done there and what was accomplished, uh, once and for all, um, you know, that's, uh, that, that was the greatest change that took place in my heart was, was understanding, okay, it's, it, it's not dependent on me. Uh, God is going to, uh, ultimately, uh, make me perfect and sanctify me. Um, but that's not, it's not on me to make that happen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. It's, it's something I need to work on because I feel like, yeah, if you just present LDS with these, these set of uh, logical arguments, you know, they'll obviously see the truth. And, and, you know, I think God used logical arguments to help me come out of the church, you know, the contradictions, the historical issues, but that doesn't bring you to faith in Christ. You know, that, you know, just, just showing the church has issues and, and contradictions is, is not enough. And that's mm -hmm. why so many LDS leave and, and don't have faith in Christ. But I was still yearning. I was still thirsty for, you know, for peace. I was, I, was, I was thirsting to know who God was and like who I was with in relation to him. 
And so that's why I felt like I was just dragged down to my knees. And I was just like, God, I don't know. Like if you're, I remember praying and I was like, God, you know, I don't know if you're a Trinity or not. I don't even know what that means really, but I'm willing to believe whatever you want me to believe, you Mm -hmm. know? And I just want you to rescue me. I just want you to save me because I'm so confused and so much in doubt. And I know that I'm a sinner and I need help and I'm not going to trust anything I do. And I felt like it was at that moment that, you know, the God, that God rescued me. Hmm. And, and that's, and, but that's hard, you know, it's hard to really share that with Latter-day Saints just because how do, how do you share something so personal that they feel that they've already had too? They're like, well, I've had that experience too. Mm-hmm. And and it's like, no, you don't understand. Like it's, it's like a life. It's like you're, you, it feels like your old self is being ripped out of mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Well, and, and complete forgiveness is a concept that's not even an option in the Mormon worldview. So trying to explain to them that some, that something is available to them that they've their whole life considered just isn't even an option uh, is wild. Now you mentioned missionaries coming to your door. I'm curious when you run into missionaries or whoever uh, you end up talking to as Latter-day Saints do current Latter-day Saints, do you find that you have more credibility or less credibility since you're Exmos? Do they, do they see, oh, well, you know what you're talking about because you used to be in it or is it like, oh, well, you're a son of perdition. So I'm not going to trust anything you have to say. I think less credibility. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a challenge because um, there's the view that, well, you wouldn't have left if you really understood That's right. what yeah. our teachings are. Um, I, I see that on like <clears throat> Michael Wilder stuff all the time. Like when he has an interview or something, mm-hmm. he was obviously very much in it and very legitimately in it, but people will still comment and say, Oh, you, you just, you never, you never got it. His mom mm-hmm. taught at BYU. What are you talking about? Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. And like, maybe you could make the case that maybe they were just never, their heart was never really in it. You know, I could, I could see that, you know, because a lot of times, you know, Christians fall away from the faith. And so, you know, I'm a firm believer that those that God gives saving grace to will remain in the faith. But, but to just say that we don't understand the faith at all, or we don't really know the history or the beliefs, the doctrines, it's like, well, what, what do you want me to read? Cause I'll read it. I mean, I've read so much stuff, you know, I, I mean, I taught from preaching my gospel, you know, I read, I taught from gospel principles to new members and, you know, it's like, so what do you want me to read? You know, if it's just an understanding thing, I'll read it. But hmm. yeah, that, that, that never really made sense to me. Hmm. Yeah. And speaking from experience, you know, when I was um, newly married, uh, I think, I think my dad gave me the book. Uh, it was a book written by uh, someone who had converted to Mormonism from uh, a Christian family and then ended up leaving Mormonism and wrote kind of an expose type book. And my dad gave it to me, wanted to know what I think, what I thought about it. Um, and I remember reading through it and, uh, you know, just kind of having those same kind of thoughts. Well, he's, he's wrong here. He's wrong there. Uh, he never, he didn't understand this, you know what I mean? Um, but where I was saying he's wrong here and he's wrong there, I was probably the one who was wrong. Hmm. You know what I mean? In terms of understanding what had been taught in the past and, and being having had access to what was taught in the past fully. Um, and so it's kind of like, you know, it's almost cliche now too, with once, you know, once the LDS church published the, the gospel topics essays for, you know, people to say, well, you know, all of that was the anti anti-Mormon material of the late seventies and, and 1980s. You know what I mean? That's now being acknowledged as, as true. Mm-hmm. Um so it, it comes from a place of 
it comes from a place of uh, putting up defensive walls, right? It, when you when you read something from somebody who left, or you hear something from somebody who left, um, you put up a wall because you probably have that shelf, right? That is is weighed down, and you can't you can't allow yourself to think that this person who has left might have left for valid reasons. Otherwise, mm-hmm. that shelf is going to crack for you. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> Are Latter-day Saints the hardest people group to reach in America? I don't think so. <laughs> That's optimistic. That helped that, that encourages <laughs> me as someone who's immersed in it. <laughs> I think I think uh secular atheists are probably the hardest group to reach because okay. um at least with at least with Latter-day Saints, you you share you have a shared idea as theists that that there's a God. Um, and you can you can talk about what is truth, what is the truth about God that He has revealed uh, to the world. Um, so there's there's at least that much of a shared understanding and a shared worldview that you can you can kind of start talking about truth. But with with secular atheists who have, have taken uh, you know the idea that there's no absolute truth uh, to heart, uh, I think that's probably the hardest group to reach. Yeah, I don't know if it's the hardest group, but amongst religious people it can be very difficult because you've, you've noted, we've noted, and the apologists have noted, as soon as you dip your toes, if you've never grown up in an LDS background, you dip your toes into LDS belief and thought and apologetics. There's a huge uh, language barrier. There's a huge cultural barrier. And so a lot of times we just talk over each other, you know, it's just, you know, ships passing in the night. It's not, you know, there's no connection there. And so it takes a lot of work just to understand where they're coming from and to be able to, explain your terms and put all your cards on the table. And so there's a lot of work that goes into it probably then maybe like talking to someone who has a higher view of the authority of scripture, you know, like, I don't know, I'm, I'm just thinking off the top of my head. Like I, I talked to oneness uh, Pentecostals on, on Facebook and they'll, they'll always reference scripture. And so it's like, okay, you know, we're on the same page, at least in terms of the Bible being the word of God, mm-hmm. at least, you know, we don't have to talk about, you know, I don't have to show you evidence of, you know, the, the biblical manuscript to trans, uh, traditions, you know, and the, the authority of scripture, I don't have to, you know, but there is still that, that issue of who God is. So I don't know, it's, it's, it is very much like a lot of work just to, to get over these hurdles. And, and we, there's just a different cultural mindset of what it is to be saved. You know, they, they don't, they don't grasp this idea of salvation being a one-time thing that continues on, you know, and in, in your growth as a Christian, they see like, okay, well, if you're a one-time saved, you've got, you've got that assurance you need, then what, what else do you need? You know, that's it. It's all you, it's all, so yeah, they, that's why they struggle to understand grace because they feel like if you have that assurance of salvation and conversion, uh, you know, when you're saved, they're like, well, why wouldn't you just go sin and commit all kinds of do whatever you want? You know, you have a license to sin. They, they don't understand the concept that God also will bring a believer to, to sanctification so that the power of sin is also, you know, taken from him. So I think it's a, it's a truncated gospel to say that God will, justify you from your sins, but then leave you in your sins and never change you. Yeah. He breaks the power of canceled sin. One of my favorite lines from the hymn book. Uh, when are you guys moving back to the motherland here to help us out? When are you guys coming back to Utah? Uh, that is a <laughs> question. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't see that happening right now. <laughs> oh, come, but on, I, Paul. <laughs> come on, Paul. Come on. I'll visit. 
I'll visit. I'll give we you that. So many, so many people from Utah leave and don't come back. Uh, it's, I don't know. Utah is a weird place, man. I'm not from here. I don't know how long I'll be here. I'm just here and we need more. We need more Christians in Utah. Yeah, what about you, Matthew? Uh, well, I've got plans. I've got, assuming everything works out, you know, Lord willing, I don't know if it will, but I've got a job lined up in uh, Idaho Falls. So okay. I'm st- still in that kind of area. You know, I won't be yeah. too close to you, but. Oh yeah. Idaho Falls, man. That's beautiful up there and Mm -hmm. definitely need more Christians in Idaho Falls. So that's good. And Cincinnati needs Christians too, Paul. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) And the great thing is with with the great thing is with the podcast and being on the radio out there, we can reach people. That's right. You guys are on truth network AM 820 out here. That's right. Isn't that right? Correct. On Sundays at 2 PM. Cool. Yeah, that's great. So uh, thank you guys so much for coming on, just having a long conversation with questions that I've always wanted to ask. I appreciate that. Um, hopefully this helps people think through stuff. Thanks for, thanks for joining me. Yeah. Thanks for having us on. Appreciate it, Jeremy. God bless you, you. Jeremy. Yeah. Appreciate it.